So for those of you who are new here, we walk through books of the Bible each week, just preach straight through. We don't want to miss anything. There's a lot of things I would have already avoided in the last few weeks that we couldn't because we preached straight through. Um, so we started First and Second Samuel at Christmas, and now we are in Second Samuel chapter 13 is what Jake covered last week. So that's where we are. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel 13. And it was a pretty, I don't know if you were here last week, but it was a pretty gruesome story. Would you agree? Um, One of King David's sons, Amnon, pretended he was sick and he lured his half-sister, Tamar, into his chambers and raped her. Um, And there's really no other way to sugarcoat it. That's exactly what happened. Um, And then when this was over, and I thought this was, when when Jake was preaching through this, I thought, you know, how how relatable this is to us. When when the horrendous act was over, he told her to get out of his room, like she had done something wrong. Like, get out. And I I think that's so true of just any kind of pursuit, any kind of like deep, deep ingrained lust that you're pursuing, you're pursuing, you're pursuing. When you finally get whatever that is, a lot of times you're like... Uh, like it's just, you don't, you don't even care anymore. Like, I don't even, I don't. And so that's, it's, you, you could see it. You could see it in what he said. You could see it in just the shame that she felt like she had done something wrong. And it was just, it was, a, it was honestly a horrible chapter. Probably one, if we didn't preach book by book, we would have just avoided because it, I mean, it's just, it's an atrocious act. Um, and here's the thing, rape, like happened last week in any society at any point in time is a horrible act unfathomable. But what happens then between Amnon and Tamar, it would have been especially damning in this culture, in the culture that they were in, because beyond the emotional scarring that certainly would have taken place, there would have been cultural shaming as well. There would have been cultural scarring for Tamar for the rest of her life. She probably never would have married, probably never would have had kids. She would have lived out her days with some family member, whoever that family member was, that agreed to bring her in because she, she's in a higher position. She's in, she's King David's daughter. So everybody knows, everybody saw the whole kingdom's talking. Like it just, and it's, that's, it's sad. All right. And what, what happens is, so that happens. That was last week. And at the end of the chapter, chapter 13, Absalom finds out about it. Absalom is her, Tamar's full-blooded, they have the same parents, David, same mom. So it's his, her sister, or her brother, Absalom finds out about it. And not only does he comfort her and console her, he brings her in. He is that family member that brings her into his house. She moves in with him. She lives with him. And all the while, you don't really know this, but all the while, we can find out today, Absalom is plotting. He's plotting his revenge. He's plotting his revenge on Amnon. And you see that at the end of chapter 13. He invites all of his brothers and all his, their families to this gathering. Everybody goes to this gathering, and Absalom kills Amnon. That was the end of last week. Everybody scattered. Everybody kind of went out and did their thing. It was like, whoa, they thought it was an uprising. They thought it was a coup. They thought Absalom was trying to take over the kingdom, kill all the siblings. You know, I don't know, because it was two years later, if any of them kind of put two and two together, that that's why it was happening. So it just, everybody scatters. Even Absalom scatters. He goes 80 miles out into the desert, like just takes off. Okay, and where he goes at the end of chapter 13, it says, but Absalom fled and went to Talmi, the son of Amahud, king of Gesher. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Gesher and he was there three years. 
And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So without digging into it, you don't really grasp this, but where Absalom went was actually his maternal grandparents' house. So Absalom's grandfather was the king of Geshur. Tell me. So he just went, probably already had it set up ahead of time. He wanted to go to his grandparents' house. So he heads out there. He stays there three years. And the author says, during this time, David longed to go to him. And, you know, when I, when I was listening to Jake kind of wrap up the chapter last week, it, it just seemed like a strange way to end the chapter because you really have no idea what's going on in the mind of King David. We know everything about King David from the time he was anointed to he's in the fields, he's writing Psalms, he's running, he's in caves, he's trying to get away from Saul. I mean, you almost see every single detail. And then this happens and you don't hear anything from David for two years. Then Absalom's away for three years. I mean, there's a lot of time. You have no idea what's going in his mind. You don't know if it's depression, mourning, if he's angry. We hear nothing. And, you know, to be clear, I get it. I, 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 it's hard to fathom if you were in David's shoes what you would be thinking. The heartache that must be going on. You know, sometimes you read, you know, last week I'm reading chapter 13 along as Jake is preaching. I'm reading it and I'm just like, okay, that happened. It's like a historical account. But for David, it's, it's a big deal. His son murdered his other son to avenge his sister's rape. David's the father, his daughter's raped. One son rapes the daughter. All of a sudden the other son kills the, I mean, this is David, it's his kids. Can you imagine I mean, can you put yourself in his shoes and try to even wrap your mind around? I mean, sometimes you just read the story and you're like, whatever. But that is turmoil, right? I mean, what would you do in the midst of that kind of turmoil for your family? Like, it's, it's just, it's hard, to, it's hard to think, but we don't see any response from David. And I'm not, I'm not judging him. I'm not condemning him. I'm just curious. We, we don't see anything. And I'm not, I don't want him to take revenge, I mean, the selfish, sinful side of me wants to see him take some revenge, but, you know, you, you don't want him to take revenge. You don't, you just, I'm just wondering where he is. What, what, what is he doing? This is the man who stood up to Goliath, fought Goliath. This is the man who was in battle, who led armies against tens of thousands of Philistines. His kids, all his kids, no doubt, grew up hearing stories about how amazing David was the courage that it took to do what he did, the fact that he killed Goliath, the fact that he led all these armies. The fact, I mean, this is the second king of Israel, King David. And, you know, you think of him in the, the workplace, if you will, out of control, phenomenal. Like the kids hear these stories, but in the home, on the home front, you don't really see him do much of anything. And I, I part of me thinks it's a great reminder for us because here's the deal. One of the greatest temptations as a parent, and I'm a parent, and this is a big temptation, is to just be indifferent and apathetic. Right? So as my job, I said Jake was the only one that got paid. Um, so obviously I have a day job if I don't get paid. So um, my day job, I am a investment consultant. That's just the title. It's nothing fancy. Um, I don't work with individuals. I work with corporations. So work with corporations, help them manage their investments. So if you're a big corporation, you got lots of money, you're not going to go down to SunTrust and put it in a savings account. You know, if you got lots and lots of money, you're going to probably invest it in the market, buy bonds, whatever. You're going you're to invest it. So a lot of my day is spent watching markets, 
corresponding with CEOs, CFOs, controllers, just trying to help them, finances, you know, you get phone calls a lot, what's going on with the markets, you know, those sort of things. It's not always a walk in the park, right? 2008 was not a fun year, okay? I mean, even now, the market's pretty volatile. It's stressful at times. And on top of that, if you are in the workforce of any kind, there's expectations to work longer, there's expectations to work weekends, there's expectations to always be connected to your phone, always respond to emails. I get emails all, all hours of the day. And Courtney can attest to this. It is a struggle to not open my laptop at 9.45, 10 o'clock at night and respond to emails. I shouldn't say this is a struggle. I do it a lot. And it's, it's just, you know, you're just, you're, you feel like you're always tapped in. You always have to be on call. And so some days you get home. And this goes for men and women in here, okay? Sometimes you get home and I pull in my driveway at the end of the day, stressful day, and I just want to check out. Am I the only one? You just want to check out. I want to walk in the door. I want to hug my wife. I want to hug my kids. I want to pour a nice glass of sweet tea, unwind, and do nothing. Why did everybody laugh? Do you not drink sweet tea? Um, I unwind and do nothing. All right? I don't want to think. I don't want to discipline. I don't want to be heavily involved. I want to turn on ESPN, and I want to just veg. Am I the only one? Okay, so, I mean, you just, you come in, that's all you want to do. I want to be the cool dad that lets the kids do whatever they want, right? The kids get out of control. I got a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a nine-month-old. It is chaotic at times. When you walk in, it is chaotic. You know, they're, you walk in the door, they're, you know, on you and, you know, being stressed out all day. I, I just, it's hard to explain at times. A lot of you have been there, but it's, I, what I want to do is just do nothing. But guess what? As a father... And I'm speaking to myself. I'm not, I'm kind of speaking to you too. But as a father, I have a responsibility. Would you agree? I have a responsibility to pour into my kids, to challenge them, to correct them, to encourage them and to point them to Jesus. And I screw up all the time. My wife's laughing right now. I screw up all the time because it's just that selfish in, you know, you get selfish inside. You want to do your own thing. And, you know, but it doesn't mean you don't get back up and keep going. And as I look across our country, you know, this is not political by any stretch. I'm just trying to relate this to David. As you look at our households, you look at what we're dealing with. We, I think we're a lot like David at times. I think a lot of times we just want to, I, 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 did, I do a lot of stuff over here. I don't know that I want to be really involved over here. Does that make sense? Are you, are you with me? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a struggle. And so here, here's what I want to challenge you with before we move on. And this is for moms and dads. Invest in your kids. I'm preaching to myself. Invest in your kids. Take time to invest in your kids. I, I wonder what would have happened is if after that initial act happened, if David had gone in and said something, I don't know what would have happened. If he had pulled Absalom aside, pulled Tamar aside and said, look, here's the deal. That's not right. That shouldn't have gone down. It ends here. I'll deal with this. I wouldn't be surprised if the reason Absalom did what he did two years go by. You can imagine what's going on in his mind. Two years go by. And he's probably like, I don't know why he's not doing anything. I don't know why my dad's not doing anything. This is ridiculous. I'm going to have to deal with this myself. I'm going to take my, and again, we don't know that. I'm purely speculating. But you can see sometimes if you're not involved, you're not doing things. And so here, here's my encouragement. Get involved. And some of you are like, I already screwed up. My kids are gone. I feel like I already messed things up. Call them. Call them. Encourage them. Love them. Sometimes you got to have tough love. My parents were all about tough love. 
I didn't speak to my parents for probably six months to a year at one point. All right, this is not when I was walking with Jesus, but they were showing tough love. I was involved in a lot of things I should have been involved in. I look back on that and I'm like, I see why they did it. It was okay. So yeah, I'm not saying there won't be times where you have to do that. Call them, love them, encourage them. They might, they might need to know that you care about them. All right, so as you jump into chapter 14, Absalom and David have not spoken for three years. They've not spoken. Three years. He's been in Gesher. Okay, David's probably 60 years old at this point. You can tell by chapter 14, his commanders are getting a little nervous. 60 years old. I mean, 60 years old today is not old, right? Unless you're like, you know, 15, you're like, man, 60 is old. But 60 years old in those days, his commanders are getting a little antsy. They probably did not know that Solomon had already been named king, like the next king. God had already told David that through Nathan. They probably didn't know that. So Joab is like, okay, Absalom's over here. He's probably going to make the best next king. So I need to go get him. I need to figure out some scheme to go get Absalom, maybe trick him, maybe trick David, you know, just do what I do to bring Absalom home. So here's what he does. We're going to skip over some of this. Just I'm going to give you a summary because we're going to try to cover a chapter and a half today. Um, So Joab goes to this lady and he says, I want you to go to King David and I want you to fabricate this story. I want you to almost, you know, it's going to be exactly what happened to David, but it's going to be told through the lens of this lady that it's her issue. So this lady said she had two sons. One got into an argument, one killed the other son, and that her relatives wanted to put the guilty son to death. She didn't want anything to do with that. She's like, look, I don't want to do that. I'm just, you know, if something happens like that, my family line is gone. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like Joab got the idea from Nathan a few chapters ago where he tells a little story about the lamb. And then at the end, Nathan goes, you are that man. You remember that? When he says that, I mean, that, that, this is, David, his heart was drawn to that story. I don't know if Joab, that's the reason Joab told the story, but Joab does the same thing and the same thing happens. David is drawn into this story and he's like, okay, I'm going to show mercy. You know, I'm going to take up your cause. Nothing's going to happen. Don't worry about it. You know, everything's going to be fine. And then at the end of the story, I think he kind of puts two and two together and he's like, Joab put you up to this, didn't he? And she's like, he did, but you're a wise king. This is the right thing to do. And so David agrees, verse 23. So Joab arose and went to Gesher and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom is back, but David's not warming up to him just yet. He's back in Jerusalem, but they're not talking. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Listen to this description. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of the year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now, it seems like, I, I'm, I, when I first read this, I was like, what, who cares, right? Well, like, why do I care that he's, I mean, I realize it's a historical account, but I'm like, why did you just tell us from the top of his head to the bottom of his toe, there's not a blemish on him? Like, what's the big deal? And, but I don't know if you remembered back to 1 Samuel when Israel demanded a king. Do you remember that? So they, they leave Egypt, they have the Exodus. Then you go to Leviticus, they get the law, then you have numbers, they're wandering in the desert for 40 years. Then you have Deuteronomy. It's kind of the second giving of the law because the first generation of Israelites had all died off. They get the re-giving of the law in Deuteronomy. And then Joshua, as you're walking through the Old Testament, Joshua leads them into the promised land. That's where you get the book of Joshua. 
Then you have Judges comes next. So the, the first governmental system that was set up for the Israelites was Judges. It was a theocracy. God was ruling through Judges. And a lot of the Judges were crazy. Do you remember? I mean, if you read through Judges, it's a crazy book. You got to think Samson. Samson was a judge. Samson did all kinds of weird things, right? He was killing people with jawbones and setting fields of foxes' tails on fire. I mean, it's, there's a lot of weird things that happen, but God delivered them through judges. And that, that was the way it worked. God said, look, I am your king. You trust me, everything's going to be fine. You walk in my ways, you trust me. Very true for us today, but you, you trust me. I'm going to lead you on the course that you need to go. And they looked around and they said, we want a king. All the other nations have kings. We're tired of this. We're tired of you raising up some crazy man, Samson, at the last minute. He delivers us, but we don't have an army. We don't have anything. Like, we don't like that. We want a king. So he gave them a king, and their first king, they've only had two kings, Saul and David. So Saul was the first king. And here's what God said. God said, here is what a king is going to do. He's going to do all of these things. He's going to be worried about himself. He's going to worry about his land. He's going to worry about his money. He's going to be all consumed with himself. But I'm going to give you a king, Israel. And it's going to be a king that you want. Someone after your own heart. So that's what King Saul was. If you ever read the Bible and you're like, why would God give them a king? And he seemed like such a failure, right? You read King Saul and you're like, all these weird things are happening to King Saul. It's because King Saul was a king after their own heart. And David was what? He was a king after God's own heart. So that's why the next king comes in. So when Saul's crashing and burning, God goes to Samuel and says, Samuel, I want you to go find the next king. King number two, all right? I'm gonna tell you where you're gonna go. You're gonna to go to a house of a man named Jesse. He's got a lot of sons. And I'm gonna tell you which of those sons is gonna be king. So Samuel comes and he goes all the way over and in, verse, in chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16, he walks in and he sees the oldest son. Jesse's got all his sons lined up. They're all proud probably because one of his sons is gonna be anointed the next king. And Eliab is the oldest son. And Eliab is strong, he's tall, he's like, Samuel's like, clearly this is the guy, right? I mean, this, this is what I would want. This is a prophet of God who doesn't, he obviously can't see the heart. He's looking at the outside, which we're guilty of all the time, right? Missing the heart, looking at the, the outside, like the Pharisees. They look nice on the outside, their hearts were far from God, right? That, that's the picture. So Samuel walks in, here's what he says. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He walks in, look at this guy. How could this not be the next king? But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. And then here's one of the most important verses in all of Samuel. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Powerful verse. So that day, Samuel would anoint David as the next king. He was a runt. Runt, probably 14 or 15 at the time. You know, they get through all the sons that are lined up and God's like, no to all of them. And Samuel looks at Jesse and goes, do you got any more kids you didn't tell me about? Because God said no to all of these. He goes, well, we got the runt out in the fields working with the sheep. Do you want me to bring him in, the youngest? Like, surely he's not going to be the king. And God's like, that's him. So they get David. David runs in, boom, he's anointed as the next king. Like, and so you're, you're reading this now and you're like, oh, I get it. This, the reason you're getting such a clear picture of what Absalom looks like and how beautiful he is is because the author is planting the seed of what's to come. People are going to revolt. The people are going to go, and what are they going to do? They're going to go after the guy who looks great. He's tall. Not a man in the whole land was as handsome 
is Abel. So when you're reading that, it's like, this seems so out of place. He's going to Gesher for three years. Boom, he had long hair and he was pretty. And you're like, why did you just tell me this? Well, that's why, that's why the author told you because they're planting seed for what's about to come. Okay, so chapter, or verse seven. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was beautiful. So Absalom lived two years, two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Three years in Gesher. He comes back. He's on house arrest for two years. Can't really go anywhere. So he's back, but it says he's, he's on two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. He had his own land. He could do his own thing, but he couldn't go to the palace. And obviously, if you're Absalom and you want to be king, we're five years into this probably frustration, conspiracy, you know, that, that seed of frustration over David not acting is probably growing. And so he's, you know, wants to revolt, wants to become king. You can already see the seeds in his head. But he's like, if I'm banished and I can't be around the king, there's no way I'm going to be I'm going to be the next king. So what does he do? He takes a drastic measure. He sets Joab's fields on fire. Okay? Verse 29. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent him a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants come and set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you, come here that I may send you to the king and ask, why have I come home from Gesher? It would have been better for me to stay back there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, which we all know there is, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, he summoned Absalom. So the king, so he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, talking about King David, and, king, and the king kissed Absalom. So after five years of being apart, Absalom kind of works this system, sets somebody's fields on fire. Joab convinces him, okay, takes him before the king. Finally, he's face to face with David. Nothing's really said. Nothing's really dealt with. It's kind of swept under the rug, which so often happens. But he's just, it's probably, you know, it's interesting. What, what is important about what you just saw is not what was said, but what wasn't said. There was no repentance. See, when David sinned and David screw up, you get Psalm 51. I mean, that is a, just a re- psalm of repentance. I have screwed up. Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. Absalom screws up. You see no repentance. You see no sacrifices offered. You see nothing. He goes to David. Am I guilty or not? David gives him a kiss. They sweep it under the rug and they go on. And that, that is going to brew. Okay, I, I, I don't know your family dynamics, I'm not pointing fingers, but so often if you just sweep things under the rug, they brew, they fester, and they get deeper and years go by. And all of a sudden it's like, he said, she said it. And that, that's what's happening here. You're starting to see this and Absalom's frustrated. And now he's gonna embark on his real desires in chapter 15. After this, verse one of chapter 15, after this, so after this little episode, Absalom is free. Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. It's kind of arrogant. But his first move was to look important. So he gets these horses, which nobody really used horses except for the king. Remember, Jake mentioned that last week. They, they, the, the princes would use donkeys, mules. 
the, the horses were reserved for the king. And so he got horses. He had 50 men running from him. I mean, I'm thinking like Caesar coming back into Rome, right? I mean, that's, that's the picture you're getting. It's just like he's, he's trying to make himself look important. Verse two, and Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land, right? You see where he's going with all this. Then, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Sounds like a politician. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel. That was not a political statement. It just sounded like a politician. <laughs> Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So he's got all these horses every morning, gets up early, all these horses take him to the city gate. The city gate was like the town square. It was like city hall. You didn't want necessarily all these people coming into your small town. They would, you know, just run through the gates. And so you kind of did a lot of your business at your traders. Your people would come, people with disputes. You would deal with a lot of that at the gates. Now, there were a lot of people wanting to come into the city to see David. You needed somebody to rule on an issue that you were having. And so what happened is Absalom would say, hey, let me, let me, what's your problem? Where are you from? Tell me what's going on. Oh, if I were king, I would deal with that totally differently. It's like the perfect spot to build a following. You greet people like their long lost friends, listen to their frustrations, plant little seeds of discourse. You know, if only I were king, I would rule in your favor. And the people loved it. So think about it. If all these people coming into town, who's that? Oh, that's Absalom. He's got all these horses. He's important. He's the king's son. Clearly he's next in line to be king. And so then they go back to their towns. Oh, Absalom took care of me. Absalom did this. Absalom said if he was king, he would do it this way. Years and years and years go by, and Absalom's continuing to do the same thing. And here's the sad part. It's a subtle way of undermining David's authority, and Absalom couldn't care less about the people. He could not care less about the people's concerns and the people's issues. These are real people with real problems. They're not wealthy. I'm sure some of their concerns involve life and death. This person did something to my son. This person did something to my daughter. I mean, just think about the woman who came before David, right? My son killed my other son. I mean, those are the kind of disputes that would often come before the king. They couldn't be worked out in their hometowns. So they would bring really serious disputes to the king and the king would have to rule on them. So these are people with real problems and real concerns. And Absalom is using them, and this is important, as a way to get what he wants. He's using people to get what he wants. It doesn't matter who he steps on. doesn't matter who he crushes. doesn't matter who he manipulates. As long as his desires are met. And as, as horrible as that sounds on the surface, I think we could often do the same thing. If we're not careful, you can often do the same thing. How do, how do you view the people that God has placed around you? Coworkers, neighbors, friends, family. God, I mean, God has placed these people around you for a reason, for you to pour into them, for you to reflect Christ to them. And so often I would rather just use them to get what I want. Are you with me? I mean, you don't, I'm not saying you're doing it. I'm just saying, do you understand, right? It's, it's the, you know, how about your marriage? 
Is your marriage a way to reflect Christ or is it a way to get your needs met? My wife is here to meet my needs. My wife is here to do this. My wife is here to do that. Right? That, that, you know, even when I was preparing this, I was like, oh, that hurts, right? Because it's, it's, it's the human struggle. It's the, it's, the, it's the sinful thing in all of us that we're like, I would rather just get my needs met. I'd rather sit on the couch and watch his and do nothing. It's all about me. And I don't care who I step on. Is my career more important than who I trample on? Like I've been with this person. I've been having a relationship with this person. I've been hanging out with this person at work, but there's a job I need to get and it's a promotion and I want it. I don't care who I step on to get it. Do you see what I'm saying? That is what Absalom is doing because his kingdom is more important than God's kingdom. That's why we do it. The reason, the reason, and I am just as guilty. I'm gonna say it like 50 times so you know I'm not like judging you. The reason we do that, the reason we step on people, the reason we trample on people, the reason we take advantage of people to get what we want is because our needs, our kingdom is more important than God's kingdom. That is what Absalom is saying. He is literally taking the kingdom from David because he wants the kingdom. That's literally, that's literally what's happening. And instead of using relationships to show people who Christ is and point them to him, we pull them away from him, right? Oh, that, okay. All the people I work with know I'm a believer. Almost all of them know I'm a pastor. And if I'm treating my clients with disrespect or I'm taking advantage of my clients, I'm investing, like I'm just doing things that I shouldn't be doing, how do you think that looks to all the people I work with? Like, they're like, okay, so if that's really what a Christian is like, uh, and, and you're, you're pulling people's eyes off of Christ. The people are all focused on David, God's anointed, so they're also focused on God. He is walking with God. He's writing Psalms. He's, I mean, he is focused. I'm not saying he's always doing everything right, clearly. Bathsheba is a perfect example of that. But they are, they are seeing who God is. And the reality of that, the reality of trampling on people, the reality of using people to get what you want is in verse six. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That is, that is a powerful statement. That, I mean, the imagery that you get, Absalom stole the hearts of the people. And the hearts were with David. Therefore, they were pointed at least to the Lord. Absalom stole them to fill his own desires. And if you listen to it in the context of verse five, so throw it back in with verse five, it's even more powerful. So verse five, we're gonna go back a verse. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, remember this politicking, he would put his hand, take hold of him and kiss him, et cetera, et cetera. Now, whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put his hand out and take hold of him and kiss him. That word take hold is the same Hebrew word that was used a few chapters ago when Amnon took hold of Tamar. Same picture, same Hebrew word. So the imagery that you're getting, they're using that as an example. When, when Amnon raped Tamar, it says he took hold of her. Same Hebrew word is used here to describe Absalom. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the judgment, came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So here's the beauty. I don't want to stay on this too long. Here's the beauty. Just like Satan is using people like Absalom to steal the hearts of people for evil, as followers of Christ, we have the opportunity to love people, care for people, not trample on people, 
point people to the Lord and help them, encourage them, pray with them to give their heart to the Lord. That, that's, that's what believers do. You're walking with people, you're fellowshipping with people, you're caring for people, and ultimately you are helping them see who, helping them give their hearts to the Lord. It's not stealing, helping them give their hearts to the Lord. I was reading this week about the friendship between Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Regardless of what you think about either one of them, the, um, the richest man in the world, the richest family in the world, is the person who started Amazon. Surprise, surprise, everybody has boxes at their house every day. So, um, but that's the richest person in the world. The second richest person is Bill Gates, and the third richest person is Warren Buffett. So these two have a friendship. It goes back 20 years. All right? Bill Gates, Melinda Gates started a foundation, and the goal of their foundation is to help those in need. It's the goal of their foundation. So they're focused on things like water, getting clean water to folks. They're focused on sanitation because a lot of diseases come from poor sanitation. They're focused on medicine because a lot of people don't have access to medicine. There are literally thousands and thousands of kids dying around the world from diarrhea. In my circle of friends, I don't know one person who had a child die from diarrhea. But all over the world, drugs that you could get for less than five bucks here, people are dying from. So that's kind of what they're trying to do. They're trying to eradicate these things. So Warren Buffett just, I was reading a book about it. Warren Buffett just pledged $31 billion to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. 31 billion to help deal with some of these issues. And they asked him, the interviewer asked him, Warren, why did you give that much money to this foundation? Here's what he said. Once you have the premise that every human life is of equal value, that directs what you do with your time, your money, and your focus in life. And that's coming from a professing agnostic. Someone who doesn't want anything to do with the Lord. That, that, those are the words of Warren Buffett. But I, I, you know, as I'm reading that this week, I'm like, like I just thought it was a great reminder for me. You know, I, I get, you know, if you look at the title of this passage, if you look in your Bible and you got a little heading above chapter 15, it says Absalom's ambition. Absalom's ambition. And that's what it is. It's the ambition to get what you want. And that's what's happening. He's stepping on whoever he wants to step on. It does not matter who he tramples because he wants to get what he wants. And as, as I was listening to that Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, I'm like, man, do I look at people that way? Do I look at people? Do I understand that everybody, the lady standing on the corner of Nebraska Avenue or the person over here, do I understand that they all are equal in the eyes of God and God loves them the same? Do I, do I live my life like I believe that? And it was, it was just challenging as I read that, that people who you know, aren't even followers of Christ are willing to accept that basic premise that everyone is created equal and in the eyes, through the lenses of the gospel, that God loves them all. All right, verse seven. At the end of four years, so he's politicking for four years. He said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher and Aram saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say Absalom is king at Hebron. So the, the revolt is continuing to grow. The seeds of discourse have been sown for the last four years. And sadly, you know, when he goes to his father and says, let me go here, he says, let me go offer a sacrifice. Like he knows his heart, his dad's heart is still aligned with the Lord and he knows he can trick him if he says, I want to go offer a sacrifice. 
He doesn't say, I want to go become king. I want to go offer a sacrifice. That's what he does. Verse 11, he went with 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. They went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel. That was fun. The Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew and the people of Absalom kept increasing. So it's just the author's telling you the conspiracy continues to grow. One of David's closest advisors, Ahithophel, switches sides, goes over to Absalom. Now, backstory, he's actually Bathsheba's grandfather. Don't know if there was any, you know, seeds of discourse festering still in him from that episode. We don't know. But that's who Ahithophel is, is actually David's one of closest advisors, but it's Bathsheba's grandfather. Verse 13, and a messenger came to David saying, this is probably the first time David knows what's going down. The hearts, hearts, listen to how he says it, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all the servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he take, whether he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. They get out, they're going, the last house as they're leaving Jerusalem, they all stop. And really, I mean, I think David just wants to see who's with him. He's at the front of the line. He's like, go ahead, guys, go on. And that's the picture you're getting. Verse 18, and all his servants passed by him and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. These are like foreign mercenaries. They're mostly, most likely Philistines from when he stayed over there. But that's the names that you just saw that passed before him. Verse 19, then the king said to Atai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back. So, you know, the line's going. He comes to this one guy, Atai, and he says, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. Like go back and stay with Absalom. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I, go no, since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. May the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Atai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, listen to this, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will be your servant. It's a powerful statement. This is a, this is a foreigner. It's not even somebody who's Jewish, not an Israelite. Somebody who just sees David, sees what he stands for. And he says, wherever you, whatever you do, wherever you go, that's where I'm going to be. It kind of reminds you of Naomi, Ruth and Naomi, when she says, where you go, I will go. Verse 22. And David said to Atai, go then, pass on. And so Atai the Gittite passed on with all his men. And interestingly, all the little ones who were with him. And this is the last verse we're going to cover today. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. Absalom's up north. The revolt has started. Word gets to David. He's, de- he's declared himself king. David doesn't want bloodshed. So David kind of gathers everybody who's left in Jerusalem and says, let's go. We're going to leave the city. They get to that last kind of house on the road. He stops, kind of sees who's with them, who's making the trek with him. And it says they're all crying as they're leaving Jerusalem. Can you imagine? 
I mean, can you put yourself in their shoes? This trail of people leaving their homes, this trail of people leaving Jerusalem, walking outside the city gate, crossing over the brook Kidron on the east side of Jerusalem, making their way, as we'll find out next week, up to the Mount of Olives, and then eventually out into the wilderness. Not knowing where they're going, not knowing if they're going to be safe, not knowing what's going to happen. Charles Spurgeon has a book, and I was reading his book, and he said, he said and he's speculating, but he says, you can only imagine these are humans just like us. He said, to get to that brook, which in the wintertime in Jerusalem would have been fiercely flowing. And they have a decision to make. Okay, that way is uncertainty. That way is the wilderness. I don't know what's going on there. I'm with a king who I don't even know what's going on with him. He hasn't done much in the last 10 years. All the other people like Absalom, all the other people are following him. Am I going to make this journey? He's counting the cost of whether it was important enough to go with King David because it would be a lot easier to turn around and go back into Jerusalem. Would you agree? It'd be a lot easier just to go back and follow, you know, Absalom. This battle is probably going on inside their minds. You know, am I going to follow this narrow path? The wilderness is out there. I don't know what's going on. Or am I going to go back and do what's easy? But everybody else is doing all of Israel's turned. You got these few people that are willing to go with David. I think it's a good reminder. They're like, I'm going to go with the king, with the Lord's anointed, and I'm going to walk no matter what's out there. I don't know what the wilderness has. I don't know what, if they're safe. I don't know if it's safe there. It's probably safe here. But they crossed the brook. They went to the Mount of Olives. They went through the garden. They kept on going, and, out, and it says out into the wilderness. It says they were crying the whole way. Don't, don't miss the, the importance of that. They are crying. This, I mean, can you picture thousands of people leaving the city crying the whole way they go, every step of the way? But here's the beauty. They were being obedient to King David, who's the Lord's anointed. They were following the Lord, and the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Whatever your situation, whatever you're going through, the Lord is close to the broken hearted. Psalm 34 says, the righteous cry out, the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the broken hearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A.W. Tozer says, oh, this is fascinating. The Bible was written in tears. And if you read through the prophets and you read through a lot of it, every book probably wasn't written in tears, but you read the, the pleadings of these prophets, you read the pleadings of, you listen to Paul, he's just pleading with these people and you can just imagine him sitting in prison, crying out. I mean, A.W. Tozer says the Bible was written in tears and two tears, as you're reading it, it will yield its best treasures. You've got nowhere to go. Nowhere you think you have to rely on. Life's throwing you the curveball. People have betrayed you, life's happening here. You're leaving, you're on this journey, you're crying Look to the Lord. Look to the Lord. Psalm 55, David wrote 10 Psalms during this time. 10 Psalms. We think Psalm 55 was one of them. Psalm 55, 12 says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked into the throng. Betrayal is something I think, I don't think, I know, everybody in this room is going to deal with at some point. Different degrees for all of us. But you're going to deal with it. And I think it's a lot easier to deal with it when it's somebody maybe you expect it from, like an enemy or something. Like, of course you're going to betray me. 
But what David is dealing with is something, I mean, it's so close to home. This is his son who's betraying him. So, you know, you have to, you have to empathize. You got to put yourself in his shoes. You know, that's the picture you're seeing. Tears, sadness, doubt, uncertainty. Lord, what's going to happen? I know Solomon's going to be the next king, but I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know how many people, if there's going to be, I, I, I don't know what's happening. And I think, you know, the same thing can be true in your life right? The, the man who walks away from his family, the woman who walks away from their family, the friend who disappears when we need him most, the coworker who tramples you to get to where they want to be, the child who walks away from their faith. I mean, the list of what we perceive to be betrayals goes on and on and on. And let me encourage you before we take communion this morning, that the Lord knows your pain. Do you think he's not there with David? Do you think he's not looking down and saying, man, I, 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 I can empathize with you, right? They made their way eventually to the Mount of Olives, as we'll see next week. And I, thought, I think it's very interesting, the parallel that you see between Jesus and David. So Jesus leaves the city, walks out of the city walls. He comes, he goes down and crosses over the brook Kidron, makes his way to the garden, the Mount of Olives, makes his way to that area. First John 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Same path that David's taking, right? Where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. And Jesus would get to the garden. And as you know the story, he would be betrayed by the kiss of one of his closest friends, for lack of a better way to say it, one of his disciples, Betrayed by one of the 12. And if that wasn't bad enough, later that night, he would be denied by another one of the 12 three times. And then if that wasn't enough, the other 10 scattered and were nowhere to be found. So here's Jesus, the creator of the universe, standing trial. He's beat, he's spit on, scourged. They put a thorn in his head, they hang him on a cross. And he understands your betrayal. When you are betrayed in life, which will happen, I think he looks at you, he looks at me and he says, let's walk through this together. Let, let's, let's keep going. It happens, not saying you don't need some time to, to deal with it, not saying you don't need some time to pray about it, don't say you need some time. But it's not gonna define you. It doesn't define who you are. Jesus defines who you are. Don't ever let a past betrayal, don't ever let somebody walking out of you, don't ever let something that somebody has done to you define who you are. I mean, whether it's pain, whether it's death, whether it's uncertainty, those are all, when Jesus hung on that cross, he took all of those things. He took the shame of all of those things. And unfortunately, Satan will get you to want to, It'll just bear your burdens to pull you down. I mean, that's what, that's what, I mean, as they're crying, leaving the city, they're, they're bearing the weight of all of this. And I want you to do that. I want you to look to the Lord and say, cast your cares upon him. Not saying it doesn't hurt, not saying it's not painful, not saying it's not hard. Cast your cares upon him. Psalm 55, again, one of the Psalms we think that David wrote during this time, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved, but, but you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. And listen to these last six words. But I will 
trust in you. Do you believe those words? When family deserts you, when family members let you down, when people trample on you, when life throws the biggest curveball you've ever seen, do you trust him? Doesn't mean it's always easier, but do you trust him? We're going to take communion here in a few minutes. I'm going to ask the guys to go ahead and start in and out. But here's, here's, here's why we take communion. Communion is an opportunity for those of us who walk with Christ. I always say this and then this, everybody looks at them and not me. Um, communion is an opportunity for those of us who walk with Christ to remember the sacrifice that he made. To remember what happened on the cross, to celebrate that, that refuge, that freedom we have in him. And it also gives us the opportunity to examine our hearts. So here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna just lay a couple things out in front of you. You can examine your hearts any way you wanna examine your hearts. If you're a follower of Christ, take that, Take that juice, take that bread. And here, here's the questions I want you to ask yourself. Are you seeking your kingdom or God's kingdom? In your life, are you seeking your kingdom or God's kingdom? And let me ask you another question. Are you treating people the way God would treat them? Are you looking at people through the lenses of how God would see them? Or are you using them like Absalom to build your kingdom. You're looking at the world through the lens of the gospel. And then lastly, do, do you grasp the fact that those who are hurting or are in need are cherished and loved by the Lord? And maybe he wants to use you to minister to them. Because you might not be hurting now, but you will be. Would you agree? So take some time, bow your heads, Examine your hearts, and we'll come back in a few minutes.
Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Apparently they were having some issues in taking the Lord's Supper and people were kind of taking advantage of the situation. And so he, he writes to this church at Corinth. He said, look, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened during the Last Supper. I'm going to tell you the, the goal of what's supposed to be happening here. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink. Drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake. I'm going to finish just with a story. I was reading a book this week by Ravi Zacharias. I always enjoy reading. He's a very challenging author. He's um, an apologist, apologetics speaker all over the world. But he wrote this book, and he was talking about this house in Thailand. The name of the house was Ban Sanuk, which literally means fun house. And it's this little house in Thailand. When you walk into the house, he said there's a group of people of all ages in this big room. And they live there. They're there all the time. And he says, you go in and they're, they're all weaving. There's this Japanese style of weaving and they're all weaving. And he said, you just kind of watch and you're kind of in awe. And he said, there was this, when he went, there was this 25-year-old who stood out. He only knows he was 25 because he was talking to him. His name was Bowden Bain. And he said, just seeing him and seeing his enthusiasm, the way he bounced around the room, the way he worked, it was just, it was invigorating just to watch this, this 25-year-old work. So he pulled over a chair and he's sitting next to him. And he said, his friends called him two. That's what he went by, was two. He said, two looks up and smiles and says, I'm weaving a giant wave. I want to weave colorful patterns and waves and make the cloth as big as the wide ocean so that I'll have enough space to play and swim in my dreams. And he's laughing and then all of his other 12 friends around him are laughing and you know the whole room kind of lights up. But he said, what makes this house so special is that of the 13 residents that are there, three have physical disabilities, six have Down syndrome, including two. One is autistic, and the other three have learning and developmental disabilities. He said, but as you talk to two, you notice you're talking to him and you're just hearing his enthusiasm and how he's using the gift that he has. And he says, there's a woman that was standing next to him the whole time they were there. And the woman points to two and says, that's, that's my son. And he sold 60 of his weaving masterpieces, the things that he weaves. He said, we've sold 60 of them. And I tell him he can do whatever he wants to do with the money when he sells them. But she says, every time he gets the money, the proceeds, he takes it over and he just, she's usually sitting in a chair and he lays it at her feet. Every, no matter what he does. And he says, you know, it's, it's interesting to think that two is just this, this kid and she, you know, all of the things he's done, all the disabilities he has, you know, as far as mental capacities and stuff, that he, he has this one thing that God is gifting him to do and he does it. And he takes these proceeds and he brings it back to his mom, lays them at his feet. And Ravi says, even in his debilitation, he knows that neither the work of art nor, nor his life itself would have occurred if it wasn't for his mother. If she hadn't conceived him, carried him, loved him, Down syndrome and all. And now at 25, as he weaves, he recognizes that ultimately she is the one who made his creations possible. So he brings his earnings and he sets them at her feet. 
I was reading that story this week and it was just like, you know, one day, everybody in this room is going to stand at the feet of Jesus. And we're going to lay at his feet the rewards of what's happened in this life, what, what we have done with the gifts that he's given us. What, whatever those are, everybody in here has different gifts, but what you're going to lay at his feet those crowns. And today, when you look at these two individuals, you look at Absalom, you look at David, I think we can walk out of here with something from both of them. You see, the, the, the ambition that Absalom had the desire, the drive, the passion. At its root, it's a good thing. It's a good thing if you're using it for the kingdom of God. If you're using it for him and his purposes, but Absalom was using it for his own kingdom, his own purposes. Everybody in here has drive. Everybody in here has passion. Everybody in here has giftings. And I I would encourage you to use them. So one day when you're standing at the feet of the creator or you're bowing, at the feet of the creator, you're like, this is what you've given me. And I, I want to give these back to you. And then from David, what a, what a bad time in David's life, right? This chapter, you think of David, but here's what I want you to learn from David. When life throws you a curveball and you feel betrayed, you feel like there's no way you're going to get out of it. There's no way up that you remember that the Lord loves you. When you're looking out into the wilderness, David has no idea where he's going. He has no idea how the Lord's going to provide, if the Lord's going to provide, what the Lord's going to do. He's crossing the brook. He's walking to the Mount of Olives. And the only thing that gets in front of him is the wilderness. And we will all be there at some point in time. And when you're there, when you're standing at the wilderness, you're wondering what you're going to do. Don't ever forget that we have a heavenly father who loves you and will never forsake you. Let's pray. Heavenly father, we thank you for passages like this, that when you, when you first look at them, you're like, what, what? just there's so much there. Lord, and we just, we thank you for showing us your people, for showing us everything that you have, for showing us just what it, what it looks like, the, the warts and all of the people in scripture, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we walk out of here today, we would understand that you love us. You have a plan for our lives. Lord, there's somebody here today who, who doesn't know that, who's never trusted you, that they would do that today. They would realize that you died on the cross for their sins and they would commit their lives to you. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for everything you've done. In your name, amen.